Hello, everyone. What's up? How are you doing? I hope you are having a wonderful last day of January. Uh, this Monday, whatever time it is by you, I hope it is uh, going pretty nice. And if you are on a coast where it's already evening time, uh, I envy you because now you get to go outside and observe the beautiful night sky. Uh, so if you are new to the show, uh, this is Space Talk. So welcome, welcome where we talk about everything space. Pretty straightforward and kind of obvious. That's why I chose the name. Um, and I am your host, Athena Brensberger. Uh, you can also call me the in-house astronomer here on the Colin app. Uh, sometimes I go by the name of Astro Athens, which is basically all of my social media handles and uh, my website. So my uh, online presence where I, I get to talk a little bit about um, different DIY experiments you could do or um, different space news. And so um, that's what today's all about. So it is the space news of what's happening for the first week of February. So this includes everything from things that you can catch in the night sky. This also includes uh, different historical events, any type of breaking news. Uh, we don't cover rocket launches on this day of the week on Monday, and that is because we cover rocket launches um, in the last week of the month for the upcoming month. So if you are interested in catching any of the launches, you can go back to a couple episodes ago. Um, it's titled launches for February and you can catch all the different rocket launches that are happening. Then, uh, those do tend to change a lot. The schedule for launches. If anyone has ever seen one in person, you probably understand how that can happen easily, whether it's, um, a weather condition or something happening with the payload. Sometimes the payload isn't ready and uh, like the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is going to be what you can catch um, in the night sky from the northern and southern hemisphere. We've got a comet that's visible. We have um, a few historical events, the moon phase, and our astronomy term of the week. What I'll also do is um, towards the end of the episode, I'll open it up to any of my listeners who might want to call in and chat about any any questions you might have. It doesn't have to pertain to today's subject matter. It really can be about anything at all. Um, feel free to ask as long as it's space related. That's all I, I request. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pull up the weekly transmission now, which is an email uh, newsletter that I send out to any of my subscribers. So if you actually want to get this in your inbox... Um, you can either DM me here on the call in app or head to astroathens.com and I have a sign up list there. For those who did receive my transmission, I have a typo. <laughs> I put February space events week four. Clearly we're not even in February yet. So that is, uh, it is not week four. It is for week one. So let's go jump into astronomy term of the week. So I changed this from being term or word of the week, um, and that's just because there's tons of different vocabulary used in the field of astrophysics that a lot of people might not be accustomed to. And I use a lot of that vocabulary very uh, frequently here on Space Talk. And so um, I don't always break down the definition if I'm talking about a topic or a stream of consciousness. So um, I like to do these uh, kind of vocabulary uh visits or astronomy dictionary things every now and then. I did also create the astronomer's dictionary a while ago. I need to get that launched back up. So if you're interested, uh, maybe just let me know and I'll, I'll recreate that. So astronomy term of the week is electrodynamic tether. An electrodynamic tether is um, something that's typically connected to a satellite 
that is used to generate power. I'll read the actual definition from MIT. Electrodynamic tethers are long, thin, conductive wires deployed in space that can be used to generate power by removing kinetic energy from their orbital motion or to produce thrust when adding energy from an onboard source. So um, if you're not familiar with orbital motions, um, when we do launch satellites to space, we have to do something known as orbital insertion, which is literally what it sounds like, inserting the satellite into its orbit. And that's going to be it um, either circling around Earth or if it's a geostationary satellite, it needs to stay over a specific country or location on Earth. And so it's set to the coordinates of that country. And then the satellite rotates with the rotation of Earth so that it stays stationary for that specific location. Um, an example is the GOES-R weather satellite, or actually the GOES series satellite, I'll say. Um, it is a geostationary satellite that is used to tell our weather here in the United States. Um, I believe it's also used for a few um, other countries as well, but uh, my very first rocket launch was the GOES-R, and that continues the letters um, in synchronous orbits uh, in a alphabetical order. So it goes, goes R and then it continues um, every time they create a new satellite with better um, software, better hardware as well. So um, I also attached an image in the newsletter. Um, I'm going to also read this quote from space.com describing the image. So if you would like to see that, or maybe just type into Google electrodynamic tether, you'll be able to catch this and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, there is a specific tether system called the MXR, or the Momentum Exchange Electrodynamic Reboot Tether System, which can pick up payloads from a reusable launch vehicle into low Earth orbit, and then toss them into geosynchronous orbit. This idea could act as a hypersonic airplane space tether orbital launch system, or to be utilized to handle other launch systems other than hypersonic airplanes. So. Looks like this technology is already being worked on, and I think that this would be um, something that, I don't know, would probably be really useful when we um, also start to possibly settle on another planet, on Mars, uh, when we start building up lunar habitats as well. So pretty cool. Keep there. Keep in mind there. So let's move into our must-see celestial events for this week. We've got um, a ton of different planetary alignments, uh, which is usually what I'll include um, other must-see celestial events are things like conjunctions where you can see um, whether it's like two to three planets with the moon inside of a constellation. It can make for a really great observing uh, evening or moment, and so I'll tend to include those. There's a ton of events that go on, and so if you want to, uh, say, see what it's like at night in your area, I recommend just getting a sky chart making a sky chart or a sky map. Um, it's pretty easy to make those. Uh, either you could get them in a magazine for your area, or you can go to skyandtelescope.org and you can generate your own. Um, I also generate these and I pair them with um, different astronomer shopping lists uh, that pair well with your location. Um, and I do that for my transmission members. Um, I do apologize if, apologize if you're a transmission member and you haven't received yours yet. I will be sending those out soon for February. So uh, for February 2nd is going to be our first must-see celestial event. Um, and then we'll get into deep sky objects. 
This is Jupiter. So Jupiter is pretty visible all month um, around the evening time. But if you are doing daytime observing uh, with, say, an H-alpha filter on your telescope to uh, maybe filter out any sunlight, any harsh, um, also just, yeah, harsh UV rays that you don't want, obviously, to see, um, Jupiter is going to be four degrees north of the crescent moon. It's going to be during the daytime, about 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, if you are, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere on the East Coast. Um and then in the constellation Aquarius, so this is going to be facing your southern horizon. You can see this with the unaided eye. So if you are going to be catching this, um, say maybe in your your twelve hours ahead, and so it's evening time for you, that would be great because then you could actually see these happening at the same time. Otherwise, um, if you are somewhere where it is daytime, the best bet you'd be able to see this is by using a specialized telescope that's meant for this type of observing. Then on February 3rd, you now have Neptune that is going to be crossing the same area as Jupiter did. So four degrees north of the moon. And this will be about the same time, 4 p.m. Eastern time, facing your south-southeast horizon. Uh, this also, by the way, is paired really well with the new moon. So the new moon phase is going to be on February 1st. It reaches new moon at about 12.46 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you want to catch any type of like Milky Way chasing or you're doing deep sky object hunting, now is a perfect time because this is the new moon. So it's not, you don't have to worry about the bright full moonlight obstructing any type of dimmer objects. Um, also, that being said, if you are catching any of these planetary alignments, um, it'll be right when it's moving into a crescent moon phase. So you can catch that very thin sliver of the crescent moon aligned with Neptune and Jupiter. And then also Uranus. So February 7th, you now have Uranus about 1.2 degrees north of the moon. And this will be about 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time facing your eastern horizon. Once again, use some type of specialized telescope to catch this. Otherwise, if you're on the other side of um of the world, so maybe you're further east and your time zone is in the evening time, you'll be able to catch this, which should be really, really awesome. By February 7th, the moon is already going to be moving into um, first quarter. So it's going to slowly begin growing um, and, or also known as waxing into a crescent and then first quarter. So you'll be able to catch that. All right, let's move into our deep sky object. So, um, Anyone who is in the Northern Hemisphere, if you could just send me uh, an, emo an emoji down below on your screen, maybe like a rocket. All right. Awesome. Just got a rocket ship. Um, awesome. Awesome. So we've got Northern Hemisphere friends. I will ask about the Southern Hemisphere after I read this um, because we do have a few objects for the Southern Hemisphere. I did not include them um, by accident <laughs> in my transmission um, because I just got so excited about this comment. So we have the return of Comet 19P Borelli. This is on February 1st. The last time it was doing a flyby of Earth was in 2015. So this is going to be a really cool revisit of this comet. Uh, it's going to be pretty faint, though. It's reaching um, a like total brightness of, or of a plus 8 magnitude. So it's dim right now. It's going to slowly get brighter as it approaches Earth. Um, so, you know, today's the 31st of January, so it should start to get brighter, but by February one, 
it's going to reach its brightest, which is an eight magnitude. If you don't understand the magnitude scale, I have done episodes about this before. So either, you know, click back to, um, one of the episodes where, uh, it says in the caption, apparent versus absolute magnitude, and that'll help you understand this a little bit. Plus eight magnitude is the brightest it gets, but that's still too dim to see with the unaided eye. So get a pair of binoculars. Um, if you don't have a telescope, that's totally fine. You really don't need a fancy pair of binoculars to see this. Anything that's like, you know, a 10 times magnification should be perfectly fine to catch this comet. So, uh, this is going to be on February 1st, 2022. It's going to reach its closest approach to earth, which is about 121 million miles away. And as, as I mentioned before, we are in the new moon phase. And so because we're in a new moon, these are favorable conditions for viewing this comet. So hopefully we also don't have any clouds. Um, <laughs> I'm expecting a winter storm where I am. So I probably am not going to be able to catch this, unfortunately, but maybe wherever you are, if you have clear skies, you can see this. So how you can catch it, it's going to be in the constellation Pisces. So the Pisces constellation, that's going to be high in the Southwestern sky shortly after sunset. So about, I would say 30 to 40 minutes after sunset, wherever you're located, uh, let's stick with the Northern hemisphere for now. Um, it's going to be visible until about 11 PM local time. So wherever you are about love, it's going to start to fade. You won't be able to see it anymore. Um, so you have a short time frame. You only have between just after sunset to 11. So maybe you can try and catch it. Um, it's not visible in parts of the Southern hemisphere. So I actually did it, put that together, um, this week. So if you do want to find out a little bit more, um, I will, I could always just do another episode, um, tomorrow on some other deep sky objects visible in the Southern hemisphere. I usually will put together both Northern and Southern, but for this object, it's just really, the conditions are not, um, too favorable for those in the Southern hemisphere, really tough to catch. A little bit of history. The comet was discovered by the French astronomer Alphonse Borelli from the Maricel Observatory on December 28th, 1904. And if you want to look up an image of it, the one that I shared in my weekly transmission is a pretty funny looking peanut looking image. Um, not the peanut like uh, what New Horizons flew by. Um, I'm forgetting the name right off the top of my head. But um, this image was taken by Deep Space the Deep Space One probe. This was September 2001. It was its closest flyby at only 1,349 miles away. Can you imagine being that close to a comet? I mean, I just, I'm really so astonished by a lot of these space probes that are able to get super close up to these objects, especially the ones that land like, like, like Comet Bennu. Um, that was just so incredible. Um, and so this, um, yeah. So that being said, 1,349 miles away compared to how close it's reaching earth, which is 121 million miles, you know, it's a big difference. Uh, what's really cool about this image is it shows this sort of elongated nucleus of the comet itself. So it has this very stretched out shape to it. Uh, comets aren't always just these sort of spherical ball like objects that have a really long tail. Sometimes they look really crazy shaped. Uh, this one also is about a five mile long comet. 
So um, that is a wrap on your musty celestial events for this week, February 1st to the 7th. You've got those three planetary alignments with the moon. You've got the new moon phase, if you want to go catch any uh, Milky Way galaxy hunting. And then you have this return of Comet 19P Borelli. I'm going to do a very short music break, and then we're going to hop into space history. Let's hop back into it. I just saw that I've got a few new listeners who just joined in. Hello and welcome to Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brentsberger, also known as Astro Athens. Um, so basically this podcast, we talk about literally all things space. And what this episode is, is looking at what we can catch in our night sky for the first week of February. So we already went over a comet that is returning to Earth. It's going to be about 120 million miles away from Earth on its closest approach, which will be tomorrow on February 1st. If you want to figure out how you can catch that, um, I'm not going to go ahead and repeat all of it right now. So you can listen back to this episode after or do some, do some searching. The comet is called Comet 19P, as in Peach, Borelli, B-O-R-R-E-L-L-Y. And then we also have a few planetary alignments with the new moon, and uh, that should be pretty cool to catch this week. By the way, another reminder, the new moon phase is always a great time to try to catch the Milky Way galaxy overhead. If you happen to be in a location where you can get to a deep sky, a dark sky, and hopefully you don't have any clouds or snowstorms coming through your area, now is a perfect time to get out late between around 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. and just catch the Milky Way stretched across the sky. It is one of the most awe-inspiring moments uh, that at least I can explain ever having on top of also seeing a rocket launch. Those two are just so extraordinary. Um, and you'll always catch shooting stars, quote-unquote, or should I say meteors burning up in our atmosphere. So for space history now that we are jumping into... We have got uh, two events that I'm going to go over. Starting on February 3rd in the year 1775, the globular cluster known as M53 was discovered. This was discovered by Johann Ellert Bode. So 1775. For those of you who don't know about M53, it is a globular cluster that is made up of tens of thousands of stars, hundreds of thousands of stars. It can even reach in the millions up to about 10 million stars can, can be the total cap count of stars that can be in a globular cluster. Uh, so really big. They're usually filled with very old stars. They're very massive in size because it's a cluster. Imagine like New York city, uh, versus, um, let's say like, uh, the Amazon, as far as human population goes. 
New York City really, really densely populated as opposed to just like really spread out Amazonian jungle. Um, so this is um, filled with lots of stars is, is kind of my point. And it's a messier object. So M53, which is why it has that catalog name. So if you want to catch that, it will be, uh, sorry, you won't catch it. This is when it was discovered. Um, it may be visible in the coming days because you might find the coincidence. It's actually not a coincidence at all of when a lot of these objects are discovered. This is typically also the time that they would be visible. So uh, that would be really cool. Um, I'll let you guys know in the coming days. Then on February 7th in the year 1785 was the discovery of the barred spiral galaxy known as NGC 4027. It was discovered by William Herschel, who contributed a lot of his discoveries, um, and Caroline Herschel, his sister, to the field of astronomy. They've made quite a lot of um, deep sky object discoveries. Um, what's pretty funny, though, is uh, at their time, they weren't quite sure of what a lot of these objects were. Um, they started to finally come around to realizing that, oh, these are not nebulae, um, which is what a lot of people thought. Uh, like for the Andromeda galaxy, I thought it was it was a nebula at the time, and it turned out to be an entire galaxy, just like the Milky Way. And that's when people started to realize, oh my goodness, our universe is so much bigger and expansive than we had previously thought. So, pretty cool thing there to just think about. Where you know I, we know about these objects, um, NGC four zero two seven. We know it's discovered by William Herschel, and now today we know that it's a barred spiral galaxy. Um, also, if you don't know about the term barred spiral, it basically looks like how it sounds. It is a galaxy that has these swirly spiral arms that stretch out outside of it. And then it has this center point right where its bulge is or the nucleus of the galaxy. And it has a start to stretch out kind of like a bar. And that bar would then extend into two spiral arms, which then could eventually start to separate into multiple arms, like the Milky Way galaxy. Although a little fun fact is we have never actually seen an image of the Milky Way galaxy um, ever from space, like from outside looking in. And that's because we've never sent a space probe as humanity beyond our own galaxy. Unfortunately, our technology uh, is not up to the point yet where we can achieve interstellar travel, meaning beyond our own galaxy is interstellar space. So um, that is everything that I wanted to share today in the weekly transmission. Um, I hope that you all got to find some of this to be a little bit interesting or maybe super interesting. And I hope that some of these uh, locations uh, of different objects will be visible for you wherever you are. I hope you get to go outside at night and look up at the sky and be able to catch some of these. If you are interested in doing um, a sky chart or having me make one, um, just shoot me a DM, let me know, um, or, or you could just sign up to be a transmission member um, on my website or Patreon page. But that's totally a side note. You can always just um, explore the night sky as well on your own. Um, I want to check real quick who here is listening, who is from the Southern Hemisphere or located in the Southern Hemisphere. If you are, can you send me an emoji at the bottom right of your screen? It can be any emoji, either a clapping or a rocket. I just want to see if there's anyone from the Southern Hemisphere because there are two more objects that are visible. Um, okay, we did get a clapping hand. Awesome. I'm going to read these two objects 
pretty quickly for you guys. Um, I Sorry I didn't add it to my transmission. I did miss them because it told me it wasn't visible, but that's because I put my location in where I usually will put a location in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern. So wherever you're located, um, when I generate this visibility chart, um, I usually will put in uh, Santiago, Chile. I only do that because like, I know it's in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been there before, so it was just the first thing I thought of. So you guys, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you have the visibility of the Omicron Velorum Open Star Cluster. I know, out of all the names, (laughs) that to be the name of the the Greek letter of the most recent um, COVID. (laughs) Um, uh, um, I'm like forgetting the name, but whatever. Point is, it's called the IC2391 Open Star Cluster. Very different than a globular cluster. Open star clusters are, tend to be um, filled with less stars. There also are younger stars. Uh, usually they're very hot young blue stars where globular clusters are filled with much older, older redder stars. So this will be a brilliant star cluster for you to catch. It is very favorable for us. It's a 2.5 magnitude. So you should be able to see this um, with, with the unaided eye. Uh, but of course, also, you know, use some binoculars or telescope, which would be awesome. So for those of you in the Southern hemisphere, it'll start to rise at, uh, let's see, about 44 degrees above your Southeastern horizon. So you're already pretty high up. Your Southeastern horizon, um, is 43 degrees above it. You should be able to see over any buildings, any trees, anything that's basically there or possibly in the way. Um, and this will be starting to rise at about 9.41 p.m. local time. So this is, again, based on Santiago, Chile. So about 9.41 p.m. And then it's going to reach its highest point at about 1.41 a.m. So if you can stay up late, it's going to be 70 degrees above your southern horizon, 7-0. It's really high up. Uh, so that should be probably the best time for you to try and catch this open star cluster. Um, again, facing your Southern horizon. Uh, and eventually it's going to start to fade once, you know, morning twilight comes around, which is just before sunrise. And so this should be really fun to see. Uh, yep. Magnitude 2.5 visible to the unaided eye. Uh, but definitely you can use a pair of binoculars as well. So this is visible tonight, and we also have another one visible tonight for those who are in the Southern Hemisphere. We have IC2395, which is another open star cluster. They're actually right next to each other one day, actually the same night, so you should be able to catch both of them. This is going to be in the constellation Vela, V-E-L-A, and um, this is, let's see, let's see, it's going to be rising... (laughs) Yeah, actually about the same time, about nine says 52 PM. So, you know, just if you get outside anytime around 10 o'clock your time, you should start to catch it. It'll start to become visible at about same height, 45 degrees above your Southeastern horizon. So remember your orientation, which way to face. If you're not familiar, which way is what, um, and you don't want to pull up a, a compass. There's a really great app I use called star map and, or sky, sky guide, sorry. It's called sky guide. Um, yeah, sky guide, um, super easy, super user-friendly. I love the app. Uh, uh, and it helps you find also like the James Webb space telescope, the international space station. You could catch tons of things with the app. 
If you're a little bit more advanced and you have a digital telescope where you want to put in the right ascension and declination, which are the coordinates in which these objects are located, uh, north, south, east, west, those, what those two things stand for, um, you can use the app called Sky Safari Plus. This is a really great app for giving you those coordinates. Okay. Um, then it's going to reach its highest point about 75 degrees above your Southern horizon at the same time as the previous open star cluster, which will be about 1:43 AM. So later, you, later you stay up the better. That's typically how it goes when it comes to stargazing, which is why, uh, there's always so many jokes with astronomers and coffee. Um, cause we just, that's like all we drink. <laughs> we want to stay up late. Um, although I'm sure there's other like um, alternate options like yerba mate or tea. Um, so, all right. Well, that is about everything. Um, I'm just going to give everyone a moment. If I'm going to open it up to the public for allow participants to call in, if you guys wanted to, to ask me any questions, um, I'm going to open that up now. I'll give you a quick short music break. And then if no one wants to call in, then Bada boom, that's the end of the podcast. So let's give this music break. If you want to call in, press the call in button. Alrighty, well, I'll give everyone that moment there. Well, thank you all so much for joining Space Talk today. Um, I hope you took away something interesting, uh, but most of all, I hope you took away the interest to go out at night and look up at our beautiful sky, get a little bit of the cosmic perspective, recognize that we are not alone. We have our fellow Earthlings, and we're probably not alone in the rest of the universe either, um, at least not when we have the stars, the planets, and our moon. All right, everyone, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And as always, to the stars, at Astra.